So by this episode, you may be becoming just a little bit more comfortable with inflammatory anemia. And again, it's important to rule out the other stuff. So you got to be sure that there's not an iron deficiency state, but we'll get back to that a little bit. Of course, you want to rule out things like B12 deficiency, folate deficiency, hemolytic anemias. You want to be pretty sure you're not dealing with a bone marrow disease process or an aplastic anemia, and obviously not a genetic anemia like a sickle cell disease. And that all being said, I think the challenge comes back to it can be really difficult, at least for me, to know if sometimes there's a combination of an iron deficiency anemia with an inflammatory anemia. This is particularly true in inflammatory conditions where there is blood loss, so inflammatory bowel diseases, for instance, and others. I mean, back in the days before my time, you know, bone marrow was used as a standard for diagnosing iron deficiency. So if you lacked iron in the bone marrow, that showed you did not have adequate iron stores. But we don't go to that for iron deficiency anemia, and we rarely go to it in inflammatory anemia diagnosis. It's invasive, it hurts, it can be subject to misinterpretation with the wrong pathologist, and I can't even imagine the cost of trying to diagnose inflammatory anemia with a bunch of bone marrows because we're talking about a lot, a lot of people that have this very common problem. So what labs can we look at? Well, I already mentioned in the last episode serum ferritin. If it's very high, there is an inflammatory state. Now that does not rule out iron deficiency anemia, but the corollary to that is when you have a very low ferritin, and I would go back to my iron deficiency anemia lectures, if you have a low serum ferritin, you almost assuredly have iron deficiency. But again, you could have a high ferritin as an acute phase reactant and also have iron deficiency. So there's really no standard markers I can give you to say 100% it's this, that, or the other. But in general, iron deficiency has low MCV, right? Low mean corpuscular volume. And anemia of inflammation usually has a normal MCV. Serum transferrin is usually high in iron deficiency and low in anemia of inflammation. If you can test serum hepcidin, which I realize is probably not available everywhere, it's high in inflammatory states, low in iron deficiency. Though I'd like to emphasize that labs are not the only thing to look at, although there are some things we haven't talked about, like a lab of looking for blood loss, like hemocult blood and getting endoscopy if needed, but also you're obviously looking to see if this patient has a highly inflammatory state. Now, sometimes that can be looking at other things like a C-reactive protein, but the disease process itself, do they have AIDS? Do they have malignancy? Do they have infection? Do they have rheumatic diseases? And then sometimes you just got to take that extra step. So I was really glad that the September 19, 2019 review, Anemia of Inflammation in the New England Journal of Medicine, that the authors do what I've been doing for years, but I haven't been sure is totally right and some of my colleagues have criticized, which is, if you're not sure, just give the patient iron. I don't want to say that the authors were pushing this, but they said that you can consider a therapeutic trial of oral or intravenous iron. Now, 
If you've listened to my iron anemia lectures, I'm a much bigger fan of giving IV iron and not a big fan of oral iron, and I almost don't use oral iron at all anymore in the hospital setting. And the authors of this review article also back up that oral iron is much less reliable than intravenous iron, not to mention, which I've talked about probably at nauseum, that oral iron is really hard to take as a patient. Most patients can't. Or if they can, they're pretty miserable taking it. I think my wife has a type of iron deficiency, but not just of the iron. I think she's deficient in almost all of the appliances in her house. And at the age we've gotten to, there's probably not much treatment for that, which then brings me to treatment of anemia of inflammation. So let's move away from possible coexisting iron deficiency, which is not all that satisfying in 2019. I was talking about in a previous lecture that maybe some very specific treatments will come out. There are some folks working on hepcidin binding, but in general, what we're really stuck with for the most part is trying to target the inflammatory process, such as the infection, or trying to treat the autoimmune disease or malignancy. And if you can improve those disease processes, not only does your patient feel better, but it does tend to get rid of the anemia. Now, the unfortunate problem is a lot of inflammatory conditions that we have, such as a late-stage cancer or some very difficult-to-treat rheumatologic conditions or some people that don't respond well to inflammatory bowel disease regimens, treating that underlying process can be a lot easier said than done. But the data is there that if you can successfully treat an underlying inflammatory condition, so let's say you treat a rheumatoid arthritis patient with either an anti-interleukin-6 or an anti-TNF-alpha therapy, often their hemoglobin improves within a matter of weeks. And this has been shown in a lot of things. So tuberculosis patients, after you treat them with the appropriate antimicrobials, after about two months, the majority will have significant improvements in their anemia. Sometimes it's not so obvious things that are causing inflammation and all kinds of things cause inflammation. I mentioned obesity can be one thing and that can be treated. And there are even some foods or diets such as those that are very high in sugar that do cause inflammation. Not too surprising, but we're learning more and more about this. And listen, we've known for a long time that there's some foods that can cause a lifetime of misery, like wedding cake. And the dietary interactions causing inflammation, I think, is an expanding field that we'll know a lot more about over the next years and decades. And listen, we don't know everything. I mean, there are a lot of flat earthers and anti-vaxxers out there that think anemia happens because of hemogoblins. But the real science is obviously much more complex. Getting on with the treatment of anemia of inflammation, there are some studies out there that are showing that erythropoietin derivatives, you know, there's been different ones, darbopoietin and all kinds of other ones, that there has been some benefit in some studies, particularly if the anemia is severe. Probably not a good idea in mild anemia, not only because of cost, but remember when we're using colony stimulating factors, we can cause all kinds of problems, particularly if the underlying disease process is a malignancy using growth factors can be problematic. 
or at a minimum worrisome. And likewise, there are risks like stroke with some of these agents. There's some that think that if you are going to be using erythropoietin, you may also want to consider using intravenous iron. And these kind of things are really more on an individual basis than some strong guideline statement. Well, that's probably where we should leave it. Otherwise, I might be prone to doing another wife joke and I can get into trouble. And I don't want to do that because truly, in a sea of people, it is my eyes that would be searching for her. I do love her a lot. Although, she was kind of silly in saying yes to me spending the rest of my life annoying her. But yes means yes, so I will take it. And with that, I will catch you on the next round.